I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast Special Edition, May 30th, 2017. It's the Kushner cast. You couldn't go a long weekend without some big story breaking, but we actually mostly took the weekend off over here, despite the revelations about Jared Kushner. But now it's Tuesday, and I've got Carrie Cordero and Susan Hennessy in the Jungle Studio to discuss everything that's gone down since the Friday evening news break. Carrie, Susan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. All right, let's start with the factual background here. Uh, What do we know and what are the facts that are uh, in question and how confident are we in what we know? Carrie, get us started. Sure, well, so there were two stories and I think they approach um, the question of what happened slightly differently. The Washington Post story alleges that a communications channel Um, was proposed by Jared Kushner or at least discussed by him with Russian diplomats to set up a secure communications channel. But that story does not attribute what the motivation for the supposed secure channel would be. It doesn't get into why the channel would need to exist or what it would entail. That was followed by, uh, in in close proximity, a New York Times article, which went a little further and which seems to confirm the same reporting or similar reporting that, again, there was this proposal to create a secure communications channel from the White House to Moscow um, that would enable direct communications to occur between the White House um, and Uh, the Kremlin. But the New York Times article seems to uh, have more sources that are willing to say that the reason for the channel is to was to facilitate communications about specific security events like Syria deconfliction or other security events and that the main purpose of it was to uh, facilitate in particular communications for the to-be national security advisor, Mike Flynn, to communicate with Russia. So so I think the two articles seem to agree that there was this proposal and that it was going to, uh, it was at least being discussed that it was going to use Russian communications facilities where the articles seem to diverge, at least on my read, is what the purpose of the channel was. Okay, Susan. Do you, first of all, do you have anything to add to that as a term in terms of the factual landscape that we're dealing with? And to your mind, before we get to evaluating any of it, what are the big factual open questions that that as this piece of the story develops, we're kind of looking to to understand better? Yeah. So I think there are a few things that sort of fall in the category of um, of. F- relevant facts to keep in mind that we already knew, but now have uh, sort of newfound significance. Um, So the first is that Jared Kushner met with uh, Kislyak at at Trump Tower. Um, So actually the White House hadn't, did not uh, acknowledge that until March. Um, So after uh, uh, Michael Flynn had already been sort of forced to resign and sort of the story had blown up, um, uh, they they sort of quietly acknowledged that Kushner had met. Um, So that is, that is a White House acknowledged fact that at least this meeting as just 
described appears to have occurred in the first instance. Um, the other sort of uh, storyline that is relevant here, of which we know lots of facts, although not a critical fact, and I'll, I'll get to the why it's relevant to this story uh, in a moment, um, and that is that we know that Michael Flynn had a series of phone calls uh, with the Russian ambassador uh, to the United States surrounding this uh, decision to levy sanctions and retaliation for uh, uh, sanctions imposed uh, uh, regarding election interference. Um, and we know that the uh, White House mischaracterized the nature of those calls many, many times, um, and that sort of their hand was forced in terms of being more candid about that, uh, essentially through a series of leaks, the ultimate leak being um, after Vice President Mike Pence had gone on national television to say they did not discuss sanctions um, because it had sort of the, the specter was that somehow Flynn had made representations about lifting sanctions or, or other things as they came into office. Um, uh, then it was revealed that there was a signals interception that showed uh, that there, there was, in fact, sanctions were discussed. Um, so that's sort of the, uh, the parallel storyline. Whenever you think about what are the big open questions here, um, number one is the question of motivation. Um, so we do have this sort of Syria explanation. Um, it's a little bit thin. Uh, it's certainly plausible as one of the reasons my, why you might want to have this uh, this communication. Although it doesn't, it, it certainly doesn't account for the manner in which they they were setting it up. Um, the other real question is. To what extent was Donald Trump involved in or directing this activity? That remains the really big open question about the Flynn calls. Um, so we know that sanctions were discussed, but we actually don't know yet how they were discussed. Was there actually a representation that the Trump administration was going to lift sanctions? There's been reporting in the past two days in, uh, in the New York Times that that was uh, an open question in the first weeks of the administration, sort of unilaterally lifting these sanctions. Um, so we don't know what representations were made, um, and we don't know whether or not they were undertaken at the behest of Donald Trump. So now bringing in this story, um, which occurs earlier in time, I mean, it's like watching like a... I don't know, like memento or something, <laughs> like, like the timing is all off here. Um, and now that we know that there was this earlier meeting with Kislyak and Kushner, um, uh, as well as Michael Flynn, the sort of the explanation that Flynn was freelancing here, um, that seems more unlikely because it seems particularly unlikely that Kushner was freelancing. Um, so I think those are sort of the big open um, uh why were they doing this in the first instance? How involved was Donald Trump? Um, and to what was their motivation in adopting methods that seem to be designed to hide the communications from the U.S. intelligence community? All right. So let's talk about those methods for a minute. Um, Carrie, you were a longtime lawyer in the National Security Division at Justice, which among other things, does supervises counterintelligence investigations, uh, prosecutes spies, uh, and uh, does other spooky stuff. Um, I'm just interested in your, when you read a story, a news story, uh, wearing that former hat um, that reports truth rightly or wrongly, but let's assume for a minute that the Washington Post did not get this wildly wrong, that not only did they try to open a back channel with the Russians, 
but they tried to do it using, proposed doing it using Russians' communications equipment in, in diplomatic facilities. Uh, to w what what alarm bells start ringing in your head when you read something like that? Well, so it is the I think the the questions regarding the back channel really turn to who were they establishing seeking to establish the back channel with? Again, assuming these reports are correct, um, who are they seeking to establish it with? Which in this case is the Russian government, and two, how did they plan for the channel to take place? And, and according to these reports, it was through, it was proposed to be through a secure channel facilitated by the Russian government. That piece from a counterintelligence standpoint is what raises the alarm bells. Um, the FISA statute, which, which I think in this context really can be looked to as uh, sort of in something that we can look to to help to understand how counterintelligence and how clandestine intelligence activities can be understood because it's an it's a statute that we can look to that's defined talks about aiding and abetting others engaged in clandestine intelligence activities anyone who is in the intelligence business who understands something about how counterintelligence works and understands how foreign intelligence collection works and knows something about russian intelligence efforts which now there's plenty of information publicly available and certainly there would be information available to individuals on a transition team or or in their later white house capacity knows that uh the extent to which Russian intelligence operatives would use secure communications channels to communicate back to Moscow. So the idea that a American government official or an American political transition of official who is about to serve in the White House would entertain the idea of using Russian facilities as the mode of communication is simply inconsistent with anything that anyone who has ever worked in the in the counterintelligence arena would understand to be a normal behavior, um, and so it really speaks to the how and the, and the second piece, the who, the Russian, the fact that this wasn't some traditional ally, a friendly country, a country with which the United States has um, close partnerships in intelligence gathering. Not to say that there isn't some level of perhaps intelligence sharing or law enforcement cooperation that, that might occur between the U.S. government and the Russian government, but it certainly is very different than those sharing relationships that would exist between the United States and, uh, for example, the Five Eyes countries um, or other European Union countries. The, the fact that it is Russia in particular, and if we look to how the U.S. intelligence community assesses Russia as it poses a national security threat to the United States in the cyber realm, in diplomatic realms, in military realms, um, really, I think, explains why myself and, and others with um, experience in the counterintelligence field, uh, myself from the legal angle, uh, have concerns and uh, question the judgment of pursuing this path. On a scale of 1 to 10, where would you, 
if, if you were at NSD and information came in over the transom that somebody had done this, uh, and it was, say, as sketchy as the information that we've seen reported in, in these newspapers. Is this a two on a, on a concern scale of one to ten, a five, a seven, a nine? What, like, like h- how loud are the alarm bells going off in your head when you read this? Well, first, I will say from, um, from the former government perspective that folks in government – Um, to the extent they might be listening, uh, often take what they read in the papers with a really, really heavy dose of salt. So there is, um, you know, one does distinguish from when you're in government from what you know to be true versus what you read in the papers. So I think I do have a a fairly healthy skepticism of things like this that I read in the papers. Um, Although the dual reporting of these two reports, I think, lends to their credibility as well. And the non-denial from the White House. The silence silence from the White House um, and also um, the credibility of the particular reporters, I think, factors into one's ability to look at these reports and find them... um, credible at least at least to some degree to take them seriously um so so there's that piece but uh look it it raises a lot of concerns i mean the the way it's very unusual from a national security lawyer's perspective to be thinking about these types of questions for individuals who work in the white house i mean it, it really is inconceivable. I started working in this area in government in the year 2000 and so and, and worked at DOJ till 2010. And so it's, it's really inconceivable in our recent history to think about individuals working in the White House doing this. What, what one can sort of analyze it to is if this was a government official, some employee in the intelligence community who proposed to do the same action. Um, So if there was some mid-level government employee who works in one of the intelligence agencies and who uh, was exploring with a foreign government whose interests are often counter to our own to be going in and out of their embassy, as one of the reports um, described, and using their own channels, um, that person would certainly be scrutinized from a counterintelligence standpoint. What about you, Susan? When you read the story, you had quite the tweet storm this weekend about about this. Uh, you know, how loud or or your, were your alarms going off when you read this? Yeah, so I think um, uh, Carrie is being exceptionally responsible in how she's um, discussing it. I, I, like, I think the reality Be less is, responsible. Uh, of what, course, so, naturally. Uh, <laughs> I always think of myself as a less responsible Carrie Cordero. Um, so I, uh, you know, right, to the extent that this occurred to somebody at NSA, they wouldn't just be scrutinized. I think they would be taken into custody. I mean, like, right, there would be um, very, very serious, immediate... Uh, uh, counteraction. And if they weren't taken into custody, it would be because there was uh, a desire to not tip the United States government's hand that they were aware of this. Now, uh, it's it's apples and oranges, right? It, it's not the same for somebody to sort of be freelancing versus what they're doing on uh, behalf of the president or, or on behalf of the president-elect. That's why the question of whether or not this was being done on Trump's 
behalf or his behest becomes really uh, important. You know, I think it's worth sort of noting that, um, you know, in the intelligence community, you have to get permission before you leave, before you go to a foreign country um, and you have to report your visits to foreign countries. Um, the intelligence community considers a foreign embassy a foreign country. Um, so you have to ask permission, right? So um, every week in D.C. they have these like nice embassy weeks and they open up, you know, and you go and have hors d'oeuvres and it's like the it's famed a pretty Finnish sauna. Exactly. It's like it's a very sort of benign, um, uh, you know, fun cultural experience. Um, in the intelligence community, you don't get to do that unless you've received permission to go to Finland and, and Russia and, and anywhere else. You, you have to get permission to do that. So that's um, that's because embassies in particular are historically very common places in which serious espionage activity has occurred. So I think that um, that the question here is whether or not the desire to use the Russian embassy is just an example of really extreme naivete and that um, uh, certainly that's plausible on Kushner's part. It's less plausible on for Flynn, uh, although not entirely implausible. And the real evidence of how naive it is is um, that the Russians refuse to do it, right? Sort of even, you know, think about how advantageous it would be to have transition officials come into the embassy in which they control their space and the electronic devices they have on them. I mean, right, this is this is a, um, a target-rich opportunity, one might say. Um, and, and they're sort of freaked out by it, right? Like, what do you mean? No, of course you can't sort of touch our, our communications equipment. Um, so I think that this is, uh, it is a series of behavior that either demonstrates really, really uh, astoundingly poor judgment among people who, who have access to our most important national security secrets, um, or if it's being done without Trump's knowledge and direction, um, then it starts to become far more nefarious and, and sort of suspicious um, because what it looks like is really the only reason why you would want to use uh, the Russian facilities is in order to hide from U.S. Uh, intelligence or allied intelligence. That's the only right. The U.S. government can set up secure communications. They occur. Um, it's an ordinary for a transition to want to have communications. Um, but those would have been done under, you know, with ordinary comsec monitoring and other sorts of, it, it might have been visible um, uh, to allied nations. So this is um, this is the area in which even sort of the, the, the proffered explanation of, oh, well, you know, it was about Syria. Why would you need to hide that from the United States government. Um, that's where, at least for me, I start to run out of benign explanations. Oh. And really, that's, that's where the alarm bells come in. Okay, so let's talk about a few factors that uh, amp up the alarm bells a little higher, and then talk about some possible areas that might mitigate. Um, so in the, in the amplification department, it appears that this contact was not disclosed initially on uh, uh, Kushner's SF-86. And it fits in a pattern of non-disclosure of meetings with, uh, on the part of more people than just Kushner with this sort of Talleyrand on the Potomac, Sergei Kislyak. Um, and so, there's that aspect, right? That that seems to seems to make it a little worse. In addition, of course, it comes in the context of these Russian operations to uh, 
depending on how you want to characterize it, meddle with, interfere with, intervene with in the U.S. election. Uh, and these hot denials on the part of the Trump administration that there was any collusion. This has a little bit of the whiff of collusion after the fact, right? I mean, after you've intervened to uh, in, in the election and we've denied it and claimed it was a 400-pound guy on a bed, um, we want to use your communications equipment to establish a secret line of communication. Uh, and so my question to you both is, does this look completely different absent those two factors, or is it, or is it integral to the alarm that you experience when you read it that this is Sergei, an undisclosed contact with Sergei Kislyak after these uh, these in, in a fashion that looks kind of collusive after the election operation has already happened. You know, how, how, how much if we change the circumstances and say it's the embassy of Lithuania uh, after Hillary Clinton has won, one of her people goes in and uh, and it's a you know benign country, and the contact is not denied or not you know not, and it's disclosed. How much of it is an inherent feature of the circumstance, and how much of the alarm is a you know just a, a creature of the weirdness of the of the overall ambience of this situation? So, on the point of of disclosure, non-disclosure in a variety of areas is is one of the Achilles heels of this administration, their unwillingness to disclose information. And I think particularly when it comes to the financial interests um, and the Trump family financial interests and the conflict of interest issue, that's where because of their lack of disclosure and um, the whatever is the underlying information that they don't want revealed or they refuse to reveal regarding any existing, because I assume if they were not existing that that would have been an easier question to answer a long time ago, but any existing financial um, interests or relationships with either the Russian government or Russian oligarchs or whoever it is, um, it colors how observers view any motivation for what they're doing. So, but for the one report that um, explains away the motivation for this potential secret communications channel to be, to be intended to pertain to uh, Syria or security interests, the difficulty with all of their non-disclosure is that observers tend to then look to what are the other motivations and one place that our mind can go is the potential financial conflicts of interest. Because why else would, one might think, um, why else would they need to have a communications channel that is unknowable or hidden to the US intelligence community or our allies? And the related point with respect to the intelligence community is that this is just one more episode that demonstrates the 
complete non-understanding of the role of the intelligence community that this administration seems to have. And perhaps there are areas where it has improved slightly. There was a report um, today that uh, has a CIA director describing some improvements that have been made in the interactions with the president and his daily brief um, in terms of the community being able to make that brief more understandable and more digestible in a way that the president wants to consume it, which is fine. But the role of the intelligence community over modern history is often to fill this back channel role. And the fact that the incoming, at least some two of the incoming White House officials did not seem to understand that and actually were potentially taking steps to uh, cut out U.S. intelligence. Including one who'd run an intelligence agency. Correct. Uh, really just just continues to demonstrate um, the difficulty in some of these White House officials or incoming officials in understanding what the role of the intelligence community is, what its role in American government is, and, and how... Th- the intelligence community is an institution of government. It is not um, just something to be bypassed. Yeah, so I think sort of going to your weirdness question of like the Hillary Lithuania example, um, like let's take an even uh, an even more benign. Let's make it the British embassy, and um, we find out that some of Barack Obama's people in the transition period had this had gone and, and proposed this secret communications channel. That would be weird, right? Like that would be, I think that would be something that would raise eyebrows as that's a strange, it's strange to want to like use other facilities. I think it is something that would, that uh, people would ask for an explanation of. Carrie's shaking her head. Well, because there, and and I'll make this point briefly because uh, I think there has been information that former national security officials, you know, have uh, revealed in public formats indicating sort of the um, very close relationship that U.S. intelligence services have with their British counterparts. So so I think maybe from that perspective, the, um, the Lithuania example is a little more understandable well, than, Gen- General than the Hayden UK. specifically has said in public in his book that on, on 9-11, he called up the head of GCHQ and said, if anything ever happens to this building, you're in charge of U.S. intelligence. I mean, I mean so I, I do think there's a, right. and presumably, I don't know whether he was using our communications channels or, or the British, or even whether they're different at that stage. But I wonder if Britain's a good example of, of right. your so points. I, my, my point is that you would still, right, so um, it doesn't work because um, you wouldn't think that going through the Brits would necessarily evade U.S. surveillance. Um, that said, I... I I do think like like asking to use another country's surveillance or uh, communications equipment is still unusual. Sure. Even whenever there is shared space, um, uh, shared secured spaces, those are undertaken separately. And I, I just think it would be um, maybe maybe our minds wouldn't go to like a nefarious uh, explanation, but but I, I still think it would seem sh- um, like a a a breach of protocol that was sort of searching for an explanation. In that case, it's. Um, there are other reasons why it's, you know, uh, would be silly. Uh, but but I think, like, it, it's important to note, like, this is not just about the Russian thing. It's also 
Like, this is a really weird way to act um, uh, in general. Then I think you have to think about the context of where we are and, and the context sort of considering the, the, um, the offered explanations. So one is um, applicable to both, and that is sort of the role of... Uh, the, the reason why we collect intelligence in the first place and the reason why we undertake foreign intelligence surveillance um, uh, in the aggregate um, and sort of the, the critical nature of that broad situational awareness, the ability to know what is going on, who is doing what and why, that is something that really, really matters in terms of the U United States' ability to keep ourselves safe, um, and to uh, achieve our goals around the world, both um, diplomatically, uh, uh, militarily, and otherwise. Um, and so uh, I think it's sort of, it's important to have that in mind, right? Sort of the, the ability to sort of know what's going on in a neutral, non-political way to have our decision makers be informed. Um, and remember that, yes, he's the president-elect, but he's not the president. There is a president in that moment in time. Then take the two explanations. So one is that they're trying to have a back channel on Syria. So my initial reaction is, why in God's name would you be having a conversation with Russian government about Syria strategy in a way that appears to be designed to make it so that the Department of Defense doesn't know what those communications look like? Now, if there was going to be a back channel, and I'd, I'd, I'd sort of characterize this more as a covert channel rather than a back channel, it would be done in such a way that there would be the, the relevant actors within the United States government would have uh, insight into it, even if it was uh, sort of uh, uh, not through the ordinary diplomatic channels. So whenever you put, and, and then you layer that on with the context of you have Donald Trump Jr. going to Paris uh, to give a, a speech on Syria compensated at $50,000 to a Russian-backed sort of Kremlin-aligned think tank in October. That's weird that he would be paid to talk about Syria at all. It's weird that he would be accepting this money. Um, uh, think about the, the moment in time that this is um, uh, Secretary Mattis, uh, December 1st, which is the day that this meeting purportedly occurred. That's the day that actually Donald Trump announced uh, uh, Secretary Mattis as, as the defense secretary. Um, was he involved in these discussions? Because if you were planning on having back-channel discussions with Russia about Syria military strategy, you would think that that person would be involved. Then you go to sort of the third explanation, which is the, the sanctions one. You know, think about the, the context of after those sanctions were applied. There was bipartisan support. And from the Republican side, there was actually criticism of Barack Obama that they hadn't gone far enough. So whenever you look at this activity in that context and you realize that they're not, this is not just political gamesmanship. This is a group of people that have been elected that have an extremely strange course of conduct vis-a-vis vis vis the Russians that are acting in a way that is bizarre, contrary to sort of the, the uh, views and beliefs of a bipartisan consensus in Congress. And they're trying to do it in a way that's hidden. That becomes sort of the the the, the twelve alarm situation. Okay, so let me try. Let, let, let's talk about some of the things that may mitigate this. Um, the first is, you know, a lot of people, uh, um, particularly conservatives, are saying, "Wait a minute, you know, opening up back channel with the Russians." And actually, uh, General McMaster said this. Uh, on behalf of the administration that, you know, opening, and General Kelly did too, opening lines of communication, uh, you know, what could be wrong with that? So first question, why 
should we think of this as different from any other back channel of a sort that presidents or presidents-elect may sometimes set up? Uh, and second question, look, I mean, rightly or wrongly, uh, and I think pretty evidently wrongly, uh, the Trump and his people believed that he was being spied on and that Trump Tower was being spied on and that the campaign was being spied on. And so, you know, I have heard it said, including by some serious people like Mike Duran, that hey, the, the most logical explanation for this is that this is a group of people who thought Susan Rice was spying on them. And so they, they wanted to open a line of communications with the Russians and not be spied on by their own government illegally. Um, leaving aside the paucity of evidence that, um, that that is in fact, that that espionage activity was in fact going on, um, is the the belief that uh, that you know that U.S. intelligence was watching them in a fashion that was not proper? Is that mitigating as to the decision to use uh, Russian uh, communications equipment with with respect to a back channel that you're setting up? Like I, I mean, I think that explanation only holds up if you forget the fact that they're going to be they're going to assume office, uh, you know, two months later, right? So if that's the real reason they're they're afraid of these people spying on them, then then you don't have the communication until you enter office, right? And and you control everything. Um, so the fact that this is in the transition period and it's sort of being hidden is uh, is bizarre because if you're doing something that you're you're not ashamed of and don't think needs to be hidden, then why is there a problem of, of anyone illegally listening to it other than, you know, the the non-related issues to the substance? Um, and if it's something that, you know, the, the content of which you want to keep secret, um, why, why not just wait until the inauguration? It's just the, it, it, it structurally, it looks far more like someone who is planning to have long-term communications that blind the rest of the United States government, even when Trump is in office. And that explanation doesn't hold into that period. Carrie, what do you think? Well, my answer to your question would be no, because it's N not... N no, it doesn't mitigate it? No, or? it doesn't mitigate it, because it's not... It's not okay to use as an explanation that an incoming president presidential administration doesn't understand the law doesn't understand how the intelligence community works doesn't understand the rules about how surveillance would occur and understand that 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 argument that you just articulated that individuals in the transition might have had is just simply paranoid that does not mitigate making a um, shift in behavior so out of the norm of um, what is a sort of acceptable way of conducting government that it makes it okay. Um, the notion that they were under some kind of mass surveillance by the intelligence community is simply paranoid. It's not based in law. It's not based in rules. It's not based on any kind of briefings that they requested and would have been entitled to request and receive to have a better understanding and be better informed. So I don't think that that paranoia should be a excuse for 
legitimizing this behavior if in fact these these reports are um, are correct. The but other important data point is, you know, that there are reports that they were warned. Um, you know, that that trend that people grew concerned about sort of the the contacts with the Russians, and so there was a request for the CIA files by people on the Trump transition for other members of the transition in order to help them. Um, uh, understand how careful they needed to be. So I, I, there were cl- there was clearly even concerns within the Trump camp itself about something about the nature of these contacts. Okay, I want to close, Carrie, with uh, something I probably should have started with, which is some basic information for listeners about counterintelligence investigations and what they are and how they work. Um, so... Uh, what is a counterintelligence investigation as distinct from a criminal investigation? So a counterintelligence investigation, um, which is traditionally conducted by the FBI domestically, um, would be an investigation opened under attorney general approved guidelines um, based on some facts that indicate a national security threat um, regarding an individual. If uh, a counterintelligence investigation is conducted of uh, U.S. persons or U.S. citizens here in the United States, that investigation would need to be predicated on facts. It would need to be conducted according to different guidelines that are internal to the FBI and that are um, guidelines that are approved by the Attorney General. There are time frames for investigations. Um, Counterintelligence investigations are traditionally the most closely held investigations within Um, the individuals who are handling them. So within the FBI or within the Justice Department, to the extent that there are lawyers assigned to work on those investigations in, uh, in concert with the investigators, they're very closely held. And so um, the point that's relevant for purposes of sort of this broader Russian influence investigation to the extent that it started as a counterintelligence investigation is that counterintelligence investigations are usually... Um, not revealed publicly until there is such time as an indictment. And if there's not, the public never knows that those investigations ever took place. So the challenge in the uh, current investigations that are going forward with respect to the Russian influence piece is that over the past several months, those investigations have begun to be revealed publicly. And so that presents many challenges to those investigations um, going forward because these are not the types of investigations that um, that are effectively conducted in the public eye. Okay, so a couple, couple more very specific things about counterintelligence investigations. Purpose of a criminal investigation is to find out who did what and to prosecute them if they committed crimes. What is the purpose of a counterintelligence investigation? The, uh, the purpose of a counterintelligence investigation is to uncover uh, intelligence activities that are being conducted by someone that, uh, if it's a U.S. person, actually do potentially violate some criminal laws like espionage laws or mishandling of classified information, Um, but is to basically uncover the information um, that or the activity that the person is conducting. So um, let me give an example. If the individual is a U.S. person who is a person who has access to classified information and the investigation is focused on um, determining whether or not 
information has leaked to a foreign power, then the goal is to stop the activity. So one goal of a counterintelligence investigation is to disrupt whatever is the damaging activity that is harming national security, whether that is the leaking of classified information to a foreign power, whether that is um, the leaking of information to a public source, whether that is stealing information that is sensitive and selling it um, to some nefarious act or a foreign government or a criminal organization or something. It's to stop the activity, to uncover the activity. And then the outcome of that can depend on the facts of the case. So the outcome might be that the individual is prosecuted or on the counterintelligence side, the outcome might be that the investigation is handled quietly and that in person who was involved, who potentially has exposure to criminal liability, can potentially be used in some way um, to gather information about, uh, about perhaps the foreign power that they were involved with, in which case the existence of the investigation would never become public and there would never be criminal prosecution. So I would say to, to summarize those, it, it is to uncover the activity, it is to disrupt and stop whatever is the activity that is engaged into that is harming U.S. national security. And then, uh, and then the next stage is either prosecution or using that investigation in some way to further um, assist the intelligence community in its work. A criminal investigation uh, investigates either a crime that took place, a bomb goes off, you got to figure out who said it, right? Or a pattern of activity that comes to light that may be criminal and you investigate to find out whether it is. But you're investigating a crime, not a person as a general matter. In a counterintelligence investigation, the, 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 the matter under investigation is a person or entity. Is that correct? Like not a, not a suspicious activity, but there's an open investigation of a person or entity. It's, it's specific to that entity, right? Well, a criminal investigation, you have a subject, you have individual person or, or organizational subjects that are the subject of that investigation, too. So right, but you, but you could also have uh, an event. For example, when, when a plane hit the World Trade Center, there was no immediate subject of that investigation. Sure, there was, there was an umbrella. There was the umbrella organiz the umbrella investigation of the 9/11 attack, and then there turned out to be individuals. And then you develop within but, that. But a counterintelligence investigation does not. It starts with a reason to believe that meets the predication standards of the attorney general's guidelines that a particular person or individual or entity is either working for a foreign power or being recruited by a foreign power. And the investigation is specific to that person or entity, right? Well, today, the uh, and, and for some period of years now, actually, the attorney general guidelines that govern FBI domestic operations, it's the same set of guidelines that governs criminal investigations and counterintelligence investigations and international terrorism investigations. It's the same set of guidelines. So it used to be 
um, historically, first when I first joined the Justice Department working in this area, that there were separate guidelines for criminal investigations and national security investigations and RICO investigations, and it was all separate. And now there is one umbrella set of guidelines. But, um, but to your point, sure, if there is a terrorist attack, for example, or an event, then that can launch a criminal investigation that then um, spawns off into different areas. A counterintelligence investigation um, is uh, generally focused on there is a subject of that investigation. Um, although, again, with respect to sort of this broader Russian influence investigation, um, it, it does sound as if there are sort of multiple prongs of that, right? But an individual counterintelligence investigation um, is focused on an individual um, and has to be predicated by facts and, and there's a whole set of rules by which that investigation needs to take place. So the reason I'm asking you all these very leading questions is that in the last several days we've had starting about a week ago a string of reports about Jared Kushner being under scrutiny by the FBI and these reports have conspicuously not described him as a subject or a target or a witness, which is the language you would use for a criminal investigation. Uh, and my read on that is that's because what has actually happened here very likely is that the FBI has opened a counterintelligence investigation of Jared Kushner. And my question to you is, based on your knowledge of uh, the way counterintelligence investigations work, how, uh, how likely do you think I am to be right or wrong about that? I am not going to speculate about whether or not he is the subject of a counterintelligence investigation. I will say that I was asked this question last week on MSNBC, whether, you know, what it means that he was identified publicly as a person of interest, a quote unquote person of interest. And, and what I said then and what I'll say now is that that person of interest phrase is not a, it's not a phrase that is used in counterintelligence investigations. It's it's just not. It's more of a public relations term that law enforcement, um, even the FBI, will use if they're looking for a fugitive or something like that. It's a very different type of use. So it's not a investigative term. Um, whether or not he is the subject of an investigation, um, it's hard to read through the reports. If, if he were and that were leaked, then perhaps we would be seeing the word subject um, in the public reporting, and we're not. So um, I, I don't, I am not yet willing to speculate about what the nature of the investigative look is at him based on what has um, been publicly reported yet. We will leave it there. Carrie, Susan, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to a special edition of the Lawfare Podcast, produced in cooperation with, huh, let me think about that for a sec. Oh, yeah, the Brookings Institution. You need to do your part to help promote the Lawfare Podcast. And by that, I mean you should be tweeting about the Lawfare Podcast, sharing on Facebook the Lawfare Podcast, and for God's sakes, reviewing the Lawfare podcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Google Play, on all the podcast distribution services you've ever heard of. Do your part, and thanks for listening. <laughs>